Good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and open them up to Nehemiah. It's, it comes to you and just kind of before Psalms. Use your concordance. Nobody will judge you. It's fine. Use that table of contents up front. It's not a book that pops up a lot. And if you're doing a survey of the Bible, a lot of people think, yeah, Nehemiah, it's about building the wall. And it is. That's what it's about. But there's so much more to it than that. We'll dive in in just a moment. For those of you that are our guests today, thank you again for taking time out of your schedule and and choosing to worship with us. It's our delight to have you with us. I'm Chad. I'm honored to serve among the elders here and as pastor, just grateful to be with you this morning. I would love to pray for you as guests. Some of you are new to town. Some of you are uh, just passing through. Some of you may be doing that incredibly hard task of trying to find a church home. Still others may be just examining the claims of Christ. I want to pray for you, whatever that situation is, but I don't know how to pray for you unless you tell me. That's what that envelope is for in the uh, pew in front of you. Just grab one of those, jot down enough information so that we can connect and I can find out how we can partner with you on your journey of faith. Nehemiah is the fulfillment of so many things, and it's the cross-section of so much that we see in the Old Testament. If you'll allow me uh, just a few moments as we get into the series introduction here, I just want to tell you a little bit about where we are in the historical timeline of all things related to the Bible and Scripture. Now, we find ourselves seeing a partial fulfillment of something that came in Deuteronomy chapter number four, if you can think back that far. Uh, And I'm I'm not expecting you to quote it from memory. Let me put it on the screen from you. Uh, There's a, a prophecy nestled in Deuteronomy four that says, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, it's Moses speaking on behalf of the Lord, that you will soon utterly, watch this, perish from the land that you are going over the, to Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood, And of stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you'll find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you'll return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So what do we know about Israel? Without doing an exhaustive Old Testament kind of walkthrough here, what do we know? Did Israel carve images and worship them? Yes, that's right. Thank you for answering. It's rhetorical. I love that. Grace Covenant, don't ask rhetorical questions because they'll answer. I love it. Yes, they did. Obviously, we know that. I mean, they did it as the law was being given to Moses. Like, we can back it up a little bit, and and here they are getting another warning again. It happened time and time again. I know I've quoted it before. Uh, Just a wonderful, fantastic theological example from the Pixar movie Up. Remember the dog. 
right? The dog is talking. I am a dog. I love you. I want to be a squirrel, <laughs> right? That's Israel. They're like, yes, Lord. We lo- Oh, look at this shiny thing. Let's go chase after this shiny. Oh, look at this thing. We can, we can marry these folks that you told us not to marry. Let's do this. This looks nice. Not that any of us struggle with being distracted in our walk with God. So God is saying, as a result of that, you're going to be scattered. And Jerusalem, this this incredible place, this mark of my presence, this fulfillment of my covenant with you here on the earth, Old Testament, it's going to be destroyed. But if you'll seek me, there can be restoration in your life and also in the city. More than a hundred years before the time that we read Nehemiah, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He destroyed Jerusalem and took the uh, people into exile. In 539 BC, write this down, there's going to be a test. I'm just kidding. In 539 BC, the Persians under Cyrus the Great defeated the Babylonians and absorbed all of the lands and all their possessions and all the captives that the Babylonians had taken captive. Now, during this time, the Persian Empire had reached its Zenith. It had really reached its greatest extent. It engulfed most of what we know as the Near East today. The next year, Cyrus allowed some of the Jewish people, the people of Judah, now called Jews, to return home and to rebuild the temple of God. Side note here, you may remember Ezra. If you're studying the Bible, you study Ezra and Nehemiah together because they do like this. In fact, some translators wonder why the books weren't combined But Ezra was a scribe. Do you remember this? So Ezra goes back in one wave, and and he's concerned with educating the people. Zerubbabel goes back with another wave. He's a priest, so he's going to kind of restore things at the temple. And then Nehemiah goes back and becomes the governor to knit it all together. That's kind of where we are. Several waves have gone already, but not enough to really make anything happen. I don't know about you, but if you keep working on the same project and don't see a lot of results, you can be tempted to just throw in the towel. Anybody tempted with that? Anybody have started but unfinished projects at home? Or is that just me? I have been going to empty this storage area in my basement that has this uh, incredible trove and treasure chest of NASCAR memorabilia. Shocking, I know, right? Um, We've lived in the house for six years, but because it is out of sight, it is out of my mind. Anybody else? Just me. Y'all pray for your pastor. Okay. So here we are. And then we're around the neighborhood of 449 or 446, rather, B.C. Let me tell you, don't put the image up yet, Mark. It's a really cool, well, it's not a cool image, but it's a neat-looking picture. Uh, I want to show you Susa in just a moment. Susa was mentioned here. Susa is this citadel, but it's in a really hot part of the Middle East. Their summers got up to 130 degrees. Perspective. I know it's been boiling outside for a while, but it's not been 130. This was the winter home, uh, yeah, you reckon, of the Persian kings where they would go. This is where Esther took place. It's also where, boy, Bible nerds, you ought to be salivating at this one. Ready? It's also where the vision of Daniel 9 took place. I'm going to reference that again in just a moment. Pretty cool. Here's a picture of the citadel of Susa. I went there and sketched it. This is what, from archaeological digs, they've reconstructed this. It's a pretty menacing 
encampment. It's a towering citadel here. It's a fortress. King Artaxerxes is the king that's inhabiting it at this time. He's the same king in Ezra 4 that ordered the stopping of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. One last character sketch, and then we get into our text. Nehemiah, that sets the tone for the whole series. Nehemiah, his name means the Lord comforts. He was born in captivity. Uh, he was in the court of Artaxerxes. We learned at the end of Nehemiah 1, which we'll read this morning, that he was a cupbearer to the king. He held a high position. He was much like the butler, but he was the last line of defense if anything poisonous was going to make it to the king. And so if somebody had poisoned the wine, Nehemiah would know, and within a few moments, so would everybody else, because he would just kind of drop over. Um, I hope he was well compensated. That's a pretty risky job. Uh, he had a heart, though, for his people. Now, we transition into the book. There's a little of the color of the history of where we're going. Nehemiah here is, is serving. The first part of the book is about them rebuilding the wall. The second part deals with worship and restoration of the individual. And then the final part, it's the city of David begins to be rebuilt and repopulated. God works through Nehemiah all throughout this book. You're going to see that. The historicity of this book is uncontested. It's absolutely verifiable and stands up for authenticity. The Bible is reliable. There are a lot of lessons we can learn, and there are a lot of ways to preach Nehemiah 1, but this morning I want to show you a heart for God. I want us to focus on some of the things that are evident in Nehemiah's life that show us his heart for God. Now, our our dear brother Mark just read those first four verses. If you've got them up in your Bible, I won't put them on the screen uh, constantly this morning. I'm going to put some up that we haven't read. But the first thing, the first note I want you to take this morning is to write this down. Uh, it's a heart of concern in verses 1 through 4. If you tell me you have a heart for God, you tell me you're following God, you tell me you want to walk with God. You're a Christian. You're a Bible-believing Christian. Then you will have a heart of concern. Nehemiah shows it to us in very direct ways. The first thing that he has a concern for is for the well-being of God's people. He is concerned for the people of God. Look at the text. In verse 2, Hanani, or Hanani, however you want to read it, I'll probably mess up and say it both ways. One of the brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them, look at his first question in verse 2. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. When Hanani came up, this, this horse caravan, this camel caravan came into the city. Nehemiah intercepted them because they would not have come directly into the king's court at this stage. Nehemiah intercepts them, sees them, and sees the look in Hanani's face, no doubt. I don't know if you remember the news footage from post-9-11 coverage of those that were on the ground in New York and even around the Pentagon and, and in other places in our country. But you could see the dust still on their faces and this faraway look in their eyes as if part of reality had been snatched from them. I don't know if you've seen news footage locally of where storms have devastated neighborhoods and people have lost in a moment, lost their homes and lost everything and the news 
camera, and I appreciate that they're trying to cover the story, but they cram a camera right in their face and shove a mic in their face, and they're still processing loss. They've not even really entered stages of grief yet. They're still in shock and awe. And they're saying, tell us about it. And you see this kind of, uh, (laughs) it's just awful. We've lost everything. Nehemiah's first question to to Hananiah, because he can see that something's up, is what's going on with the people? Tell me about the people that you saw. I think there's evidence of that look in the way that Hananiah responds. Can I just bring a word of practical application and work it in the text as I'm moving along here? Notice that Nehemiah didn't first stop Hananiah and say, hey, great to see you. Let me give you the scoop of everything been going on at the palace. Hey, you've been away. Let me update you on me for just a minute. Or, or, or talk to him like this. You, you don't, you don't, you've never met anybody like this, but I know people like this. They're like, hey, uh, so how's it going? Tell me about your day. Uh-huh, uh-huh, that's nice. Anyway, let me tell you about what's going on in the King's Palace. I had, this ta- I had to taste something the other day. Oh, my word, the chef should have been fired, right? Oversalted. He was concerned about others. He was concerned about God's people. If you have a heart for God, you have a deep concern for the people of God. He asked about people first, not the work Not the wall, not the city. He asked about the people first. That's important. He asked with awareness of their plight. It was not generic. Hey, how's everybody doing? He said, tell me about the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. He had to know what was up in their lives in order to ask in this way. Listen, it's a challenge for us to stay engaged. I know that with all of the things competing for our attention today in 2022. But I want you to hear something from your pastor this morning. Nehemiah this morning is challenging us with our hearts for God to have a heart for one another. That actually reads the prayerless when they come out, and actually takes time to pray, that lingers for just a moment, not comes in, sits in our space. I know you say you're not Baptist, but some of you act like it. Not comes in and sits in our pew, connects with our people, and then leaves and says goodbye to the same people we say goodbye to every week and miss the beauty of the people and the families and the single individuals and the college graduates and the bankers. I don't know why God keeps bringing us bankers named Isaac. There's got to be something to that. But, but we need to connect with one another. And I'm telling you this, it's more than just temperament. God can transcend temperament. It's more than just your personality type. I, I'm not a people person. You are if you've got a heart for God. That doesn't mean you have to be Mr. A all the time. I'm not asking you to fake it, but I am asking us to look at the text and recognize that people that have a heart for God in Scripture have a heart for the people of God. They're concerned. Maybe you invite somebody to lunch with you. I would know what to say. Glad you asked. Here's a couple questions. First question, how did you come to know Jesus? You've been worshiping with some folks for 25 years or more, and you don't know their testimony. I can't do it every Sunday. We can't do a parade of testimonies. Get to know one another. How did you come to know Jesus? What what, what are you the most excited about in your life right now? What's at the top of your prayer list right now? There's three questions for you for lunch today. Invite somebody with you. Now, don't ask your wife that. She'll know you've not been paying attention. I'm saying invite somebody new with you. A heart for God is a heart of concern for the people of God. 
Notice the other dimension here. He also had a deep concern for the glory of God. After he asked about the people, he said, tell me about the people and then tell me and concerning Jerusalem. I've already mentioned this. Jerusalem is the crown jewel of the glory of God on display for his people in history at this point. It's a physical representation of the covenant-keeping God. It's one of the benefits of the promise God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, and to David. It's a city, but it's God's city on earth. So he's asking about Jerusalem, not like your friends who've been out of Charlotte for 10 years are asking you if 485 is done. You with me? He's not just checking on the infrastructure. He's asking because the city means something. He is concerned, I contend, for the glory of God on display through the people of God. He's asking, how are we doing as a people obeying God and displaying His glory among the nations? Here's a challenge for us. How are we doing as a church family Concern for God's glory being displayed among the nations. It's more than just giving faithfully to the church, and I'm grateful for that. That enables us to support our missionaries and support the local mission of Grace Covenant Church. But, but I mean like to really engage, to fast and to pray on our missions Mondays, not just to get the email and go like, oh yeah, that's today. I think, oh Lord, bless him, Jesus, amen. Back to life. No, to interrupt your life because you're concerned about the glory of God on display to the nations, to contend in prayer for our faithful missionaries. You've got relationships with new missionaries that aren't connected to Grace Covenant Church. Officially pray for them. Find out how you can pray for them. They probably won't get a text from you at the wrong time asking how they're doing. And Pastor D would love to connect you to them in deeper ways. I don't know who they are. Well, we, it's online. We talk about it a lot here at church. We've got a missions moment coming up next Sunday, missions moment the following Monday, and Pastor D is available for more than just children's church. I don't know if you know that. He's happy to tell you how to pray specifically and get you on prayer list. We need to have a heart and a concern for how God is moving among the nations. We don't have a Jerusalem per se, but the work of God that's on display among the nations. I think his deep concern also caused him, I alluded to this earlier when I had my phone out, but I think it caused him to be an active listener. Boy, that's a lost art form, isn't it? Now, we adults like to throw our teens under the bus sometimes and say, well, they just don't listen, right? Nobody here does that, I know. That's not you, other people that go to other churches. But... um, But sometimes, sometimes we're as guilty of it as anybody. We don't actively listen. I can be guilty, so guilty of this, but I'm trying. I'm putting forth the effort. I'm asking God to help me to be fully present and engaged. He asked a question, and then he actually listened. In verse 4, they use words like, there is great trouble, there is shame, the wall is broken down, its gates are destroyed by fire. The shame here and the disgrace that Hanani is speaking of, here's what he's pointing to. The nations are ridiculing them. They're laughing and scoffing at the powerlessness of the Hebrews' God that he can't even keep the city intact. This God's not even strong enough to help them. Has he abandoned them? 
Now they knew that God had allowed them to go through this because of their sins, but Nehemiah's heart began to burn for the glory of God. He was concerned for the people of God. This was not a quick popcorn prayer that he prayed. This was not a single tear that trickled down his right cheek where the lighting was good for the Instagram shot. This wasn't a missions Monday moment either. This was him pouring out his heart for days he wept. For days he mourned. And for more than a day and more than a week and more than a month, he prayed and he kept on praying. Because he was actively listening and genuinely concerned, he was moved deeply. What moves you deeply, brother or sister? Creature comforts being threatened? Or when the move of God is paused in this area, that area, because of affliction or when there's something threatening, it looks like threatening a child of God, doing the work of God, we ought to be moved to intercede like it's our kid, our mom, our dad, or, or better, our brother, our sister in the line of fire. A heart for God manifests as a heart of concern. It also manifests, I believe, as a heart of prayer. I want us to look at the ingredients of Nehemiah's prayer as we work through the remaining text this morning. By the way, um, just on that weeping and moving, you can leave that slide up for just a moment, Mark. On that weeping and moving and mourning, it's good for men to be moved to weeping over sin and over need. It's good for women to be moved to mourning and weeping over sin and over need. In Ezekiel, God speaks of removing a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of subtle flesh. In Jeremiah, the Lord likens his people to being clay on the potter's wheel that he breaks when they get too hard so that he can continue to mold them and make them. Look with me at verse 4. I'll have it on the screen. I've quoted it a couple times, but it said he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He didn't just weep and mourn over what he had heard. He didn't just get emotional. By the way, there's no evidence that he was a hyper-emotional uh, driven to that. No, he had a heart for God. He was deeply concerned about the people of God and the glory of God. And so when he heard what he heard, he wept and he prayed. He prayed day and night. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute. Wait just a minute. How can he pray day and night? He's the king's cupbearer. How do you do that with all those duties? I don't mean he was on his knees all day and all night. I'm telling you, he's embodying the principle that we learn in the New Testament to pray without ceasing. His heart was ever before the throne of grace. He is underlying, his underlying thought rather is his deep concern for God's people and God's glory. He began in the work of prayer. We're going to see throughout Nehemiah, he continues in prayer. And you know what the last thing in the book of Nehemiah is? A prayer. It's kind of important. Why don't we pray? You're like, I pray. Why don't we pray more? I pray more. <laughs> Why don't we pray the heart of God more? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. 
Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Let's look at the ingredients of this prayer as we work the text this morning and let the text work us. In verse 5, look at this verse together. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. By the way, if you're our guest this morning, some of you just checked your watch and wondered now, if he's going to spend that long on each other verse, we're not, we should have brought a sandwich. It, that, it's not like that, okay? We're good. We're going to work through this together, just bring out an observation through these verses. I don't want to interrupt Nehemiah's praying too much. Notice he's not acknowledging the man upstairs. He's not casual about this. He's talking to the Lord, the God of heaven. Praise God for that. He is the uncontested, undisputed creator and ruler of all. That's who Nehemiah is talking to. He's talking to the great and greatly to be praised God. That's who he's talking to. He's talking to a God that's awesome. Job said that he was clothed in awesomeness. The psalmist records that his deeds are so awesome, they point to his righteousness. Daniel uses this same phrase. By the way, here's that little nerd alert I gave you. Daniel prayed almost this identical prayer in Daniel 9. Like elbow someone like, I can't, I know, it's there. Stuff's in the Bible. The Bible's awesome. And it was in Susa. No? Just me? Okay. He prayed to the God who is awesome. He's the promise keeper. He keeps his covenant. He's the God that loves us with an out-of-this-world kind of love, that never-ending, never-stopping, always chasing after us, uh, chasing after your kids kind of love, that has said love that only God can have. He knows who loves him, and he knows who is walking in obedience to him. Make no mistake, God is hearing the prayer of Nehemiah because Nehemiah is praying to the God that answers prayer. This is not some, let me throw one up and say a prayer and thoughts and prayers that our politicians, which I always scratch my head at when they ask for, since they keep uh, marginalizing the church. (laughs) Moving on. I'm just curious who they think it is we pray to. We pray to the God that has revealed himself to us through the word of God that holds us captive to the work of God that we might be the people of God having a heart for God. Let the church say amen. We're praying to God. Pray big, church. God is big. He can handle your prayers. Pray small if you need him intimate as close. He's small enough to be with each one of us. Pray when you feel like praying. Pray when you don't feel like praying. And pray until you feel like praying. Just pray for the love of God. Pray. Daniel is praying to the God of heaven. He starts by praising God's character. That's an important element in prayer. I think in Bible praying, you better acknowledge the character of the one that you're praying to and pray in a way that acknowledges him. That does not mean you've got to write out some Puritan prayer of days gone by. I love reading prayers occasionally. Uh, they've, They've enhanced my prayer life. We read them from time to time here when they're appropriate in the moment. And there's a richness to them. I'm not suggesting you've got to start with a two-hour prologue uh, like the brother that stood up in church one time and said, maker of Jupiter and Mars and all points in between. Maker of the trees and the leaves on the tree and the branch on the leaves. And you thought, oh my, we're in for a long haul. 
Yeah. I'm not suggesting it has to be long or that you have to make much with words. I am suggesting that you know who you're talking to. Nehemiah then moves to confession in verses six and seven. Look at the text. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, watch that, which we have sinned against you. Now that's why he could confess Even I and my father's house have sinned. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. There's not a whole lot of they in this. There's a whole lot of I and we. Just a side note here, and I, I don't have time for too many side notes. I'm conscious of that this morning, but let me just tell you. There's a movement in progressive Christianity, which is heretical, by the way. There's a movement in critical theorists, which is heretical, by the way, calling us to repent of sins that we did not commit. The Bible does not call us to do that. He's not confessing or repenting of something he didn't do. That word confession means to agree with God. So when God says something is sin, we don't try to rewrite the narrative like culture's doing today. Our God, who is absolutely God, all by himself, who has revealed absolute truth to us through the word of God, has clearly shown us what is sin and what holy living looks like. And when we miss the mark, when we sin, we confess our sin, and the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Nehemiah here is confessing, Lord Israel has missed it. We know why we're in the shape that we're in. It was sin that got us there. We do that on the National Day of Prayer as the church. We acknowledge the sins of this nation. We do that at the abortion mills when we stand out there acknowledging the heinous sin that is happening right in front of our eyes and the sin of a culture that would embrace and allow it and the sin of a church that would look the other way. We acknowledge and confess the sins, we repent of what we have committed ourselves. He's confessing the sin and he's also repenting of what he's done. He said, I, we, my fathers, us, me. We need to repent if we find ourselves loving the things God hates. We need to repent if we find ourselves pushing back on the instruction of a holy God. If there's no overt sin when we pray, you can ask God to search us And know us just like David did. And say, search me, Lord. Find that thing. Listen to me carefully. You can take a glass bottle with a wide brim on top and cork it with a cork as tight as a cork will go in. You can set it under the force of Niagara Falls and not one drop of that water will get into that bottle as long as it's corked. Child of God, hear me. If there is sin in your life that you won't deal with, you have corked up your life from the blessings of God. And until you uncork that thing, until you confess that sin and repent of that sin and get rid of that sin, ask God to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, you are missing out on the Niagara Falls of the blessings of Almighty God. If you saw somebody do that, said, I want to get my bottle filled, and they walked and put it under a waterfall, and you're like, you've got it corked up. What's wrong with you? Right? And yet we do that sometimes, don't we? Nehemiah is saying, not me. I want the blessings of God. I need the blessings of God. We move on to the next section of verses. It's it's a prayer of conviction that he's praying. 
There's conviction in what he's praying. He's not asking God for something amiss to be consumed on his own selfish desires like James warns us. Warns us. He is asking God for something with conviction and with uh, authority even, audacity to ask God for his will to be done. Look at this prayer of conviction in verses 8 through 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. He is praying the very promises of God back to God. Have you ever done that? I know you've asked for a new car. Lord, I, I just saw that new whatever. Honda Fit. I don't know what it is, what lights your candle. But uh, for most of us, it's like a minivan where the doors work, whatever it is. I just saw that. I, I don't know what to do with that, Lord. I, 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 Lord, could you bless me with that? I don't know if that's, I hope that's not the extent of your prayer life. I hope that the extent of your prayer life is more than just the stuff that you want that will pass away and temporary things that will fade in eternity. Nehemiah here is praying on the eternal matters of God and he's praying the Bible. Do you know the Bible enough? Does it show up in your prayer life? It can. It can do that. Study the word, get in the word so it gets in you and gets in your prayer life. Nehemiah knew the word of God, therefore he could pray the promises of God. You say, I don't have a lot of confidence in praying. Send me an email. Send me a text. I'll, I'll set you up. We'll, we'll work together over the course of weeks. You're like, you don't have time for that. Yes, I do. I've got time for you. I'll set you up and teach you how to pray the scriptures. We'll work through the Psalms. I'll give you a little reading plan for 30 days that will teach you how to pray the scriptures. And I'm going to ask you to make that the lion's share of your praying. It will revolutionize your prayer life and bring you confidence in praying as you begin to pray the heart of God. Listen, when Nehemiah prayed like this, something happened. You know what happened? The wall didn't rebuild itself. The king's heart wasn't changed on a dime. What happened right here? Verse 11, there's something that showed up. I have worked through this text before. Uh, Brother Jim, I, I've done it multiple times. I've read it so many times. We read it recently. And then in study this week, it was like, has that happened to you? You see something? God speaks something? fresh by verse 11 something happens nehemiah is not alone in his praying how do you get that look at the verse he finishes up and says oh lord let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your say that word please servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man <laughs> Now, I was a cupbearer to the king. He says, I'm praying. He started out, I, me, my father's, our house. And now he's saying, and give success to me and these others that are praying with me. There's a community of prayer. I want to tell you something. Ingredients for a successful prayer ministry at a church involved the church praying <laughs> there are opportunities for us to pray together you can get here a few minutes early and pray 
There's a prayer room just through this door, up the steps, just to my left, your right. I'd love to see somebody in there every Sunday throughout the whole service, praying and interceding. I've asked for that. Prayer changes things. And you want to see a church doing a work for God? It's not built on event or personality. It's built the way that God builds things, through the work of prayer. A community began to pray. Nehemiah is more than 100 miles away from Jerusalem in exile in Persia. But though he is in Persia, he is not of Persia. I'm about to close. He's present there. He's giving duties with excellence to the king. He's doing his job, but his heart is somewhere else. He was never too busy to study the Bible or to pray. His supreme concern, his driving force is the kingdom of God. He prays and asks God for success, and it leads him to his next step, which we see show up in chapter 2. Just one word on a couple of things that pop up there. He, he's not asking for success in, in consumption or gain. He's not asking for selfish ambition. He is asking for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. This kind of prayer invites others to pray along with him. We see the plan of action beginning to formulate. I, you know, there's some stuff written in the Bible and stuff recorded, and God does it, and he's got a sense of humor on some of the things that he writes. I just want you to notice Nehemiah is the highest butler in the butler's office and the king's council. So imagine the pomp and the circumstance he's got to go through. Like, I imagine he's carrying the cup, you know, anytime he walks in. I don't know if there's music, but I can see him just kind of walking in, placed in a certain way. Uh, I was watching uh, Mary Berry. Uh, only four of you know who she is, the British cook that did the, 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 the um, cooking show. I don't know. It's things we watch to go to sleep at night. I was watching her in a, in a Scottish palace and, and the table was set. And I watched this guy in the background. I get distracted by things like this guy in the background, the whole time she's in there, he adjusted this napkin like five times. He kept like touching it. And I'm thinking, I feel you, brother. That's, I struggle with that sometimes. I imagine there was that level of circumstance there. But, but when he's talking to God, do you know what he refers to the king as? This man. It's a throwaway word. It's like, this fellow over here, I got, I got to do business with this fella. The, the only way you get that is when you're in the presence of a real king. Are you struggling with the fear of man? Get into the presence of God. And let God help you with that. I, there's so much here. I could speak of the causes that would cause you to be motivated with this, but that's not the sermon this morning. The sermon this morning is, do you see Nehemiah's heart for God? It shows up in his concern, his deep concern for the people of God, for the glory of God, for the way that he actually listens and engages. And then it manifests. He pours his heart out to God in prayer. I'm going to ask Julia and the musicians to come. Actually, Julia's coming for communion. That's right. I'll bet when Nehemiah started to pray, he had no idea that he was going to be the one to go back and help rebuild the wall. But can I tell you something? When a man or a woman gets concerned about the things that God is concerned with, when a man or a woman gets into harmony with God, God prepares that man or woman for a work to do. Prayer is not just preparation for the work. It's the first work. But it leads to other work, doesn't it? It leads to other work. I want to challenge you this morning.
to have a heart for God. Now, the only way unregenerate humanity can do that because we're sinners. The Bible says no one glorifies God. We're all sinners. We've all gone astray. Everyone's gone to his own way. There's none righteous. No, not one. So how can I have a heart for God? I'm glad you asked. The Lord Jesus made a way because it's what he designed you for. The Father sent his only son because he so loved the world. He so loved you. He so loved me that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. He wants to make you new. If you'll trust him, put your faith and trust in this God who wants to give you a heart that burns for him and others. I want you to pray like Nehemiah. I want you to pray the Bible. I want you, like Nehemiah, to come before God empty-handed. He had nothing to offer. But just because he was empty-handed didn't mean he was uninvited. That's us today. God is inviting you to his throne room. Let's pray. Father, we confess our need for you this morning. We confess that you are God and we are not. You are holy and righteous and sovereign and there is none like you, God. You are worthy. And you're worthy of our praise, not just because you've answered prayers for us and not just because you have forgiven us, many of us who have stood in need of much forgiveness. But Lord, we praise you because you are God. We praise you that you chose to reveal yourself to us through your word and you sent your Holy Spirit to convict us and to convert us, Lord, and to call us into your marvelous kingdom. Thank you for your presence here today among the body. Thank you for this moment as we gather around the table. Lord, in this war-torn world, with mankind in open rebellion against you, the holy God, we marvel that you have provided for us a means that we can have peace that passes understanding. Lord, we come to this table today, it's your table, with a sense of awe and gratitude for our salvation and for our Savior, for we have been saved. We've been saved from our own sin, saved from eternal death, and saved from your wrath. And for such salvation, Lord, we celebrate today this good and holy meal. In Jesus' name, amen.